Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Food Flow, the podcast dedicated to the in-depth exploration of the beautiful world of food. My name is Ivor Margerison from thefoodflow.com, and I am joined today by the author of the 2015 book, Grain of Truth, Stephen Yaffa. Stephen, great to have you on the show. Same here. I look forward to it. So today's topic is gluten and wheat. Uh, foods that have become increasingly demonized by the health world, pegged with being responsible for everything from digestive to mental health issues. But Stephen's wheat ideologies are a bit different, and he's going to share uh, with us a bit of his understanding of the topic in terms of agriculture, nutrition, and preparation, and why he believes the gluten-free craze may have some things wrong. But before we kind of get into that, Stephen, why don't we start with your uh, food story? How did you end up with a book in Barnes & Noble about wheat? <laughs> well, that, that is a story that could actually uh, take up the entire length of, of, of this broadcast, <laughs> but in a, in, a, in a one or two, one-minute version. Um, I've always uh, been, uh, uh, fortunately, um, healthy enough to exercise. You know, I've been running for over 30 years. I've been you know, an avid tennis player and so forth and so on. And as a result of which, um, I wound up really eating a, a diet of vegetables and fish that for probably the better of three decades at this point. And I don't really proselytize it at all, but it just seems to work very well with my uh, system. And because uh, at the same time, I'm an investigative journalist as well as a, a novelist and so forth. Uh, when I look at things like food fads, among, among other kinds of fads, I do it in a more skeptical way, perhaps, than a lot of people. I don't dismiss the the basis of it entirely, but I, I really wonder, you know, based on my own experience, uh, common sense has always seen me through, and I think a lot of these things really defy uh, common sense. So I've been very skeptical at times um, when I hear the greatest new pa uh, panacea has arrived or that suddenly, you know, something we've always really liked, like eggs, are suddenly terrible for us because <laughs> I know five minutes later they're going to turn out to be okay after all. So that's a kind of a, an upshot of where I'm at. Okay. All right. So and then this kind of led you, um, this kind of led into uh, an interest in wheat. Obviously, we know that that is kind of the popular trend right now. And just to touch on that for people who aren't really aware, um, can you just give us like a quick crash course on what when we say wheat and gluten, are they the same in one? What's the difference? What are the parts? Uh, no, it's a very good question. And I get that a lot when I when I give uh, talks around the country. The uh, answer to your question is that uh, in the starch of a wheat berry, as it's called, there are three components. One is the internal component is white um, endosperm, which is what we essentially call white flour. It's extracted from the wheat berry. The other two components are the hull bran or the embryo, um, and so of the germ. And so when you've got the uh, interior part of the wheat berry, what's in there is a package of protein, uh, two proteins, gliadin and glutenin. Those make up a package which essentially is gluten. And that gluten package consists of these molecules which are bound together very much like a fishing line with tiny little bobbers on it. Bob, um, uh, uh, so if you looked at it under a microscope, you would see these little dots essentially strung out along a long line of amino acids. And that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about gluten protein. And that protein, those proteins combine to... Uh, create elasticity and, and to hold those air bubbles in place once the bread when the carbon dioxide expands inside a loaf of bread, that's why bread rises. 
And to highlight on the culinary importance of this, uh, a little kitchen experiment that someone could do at home, you can take corn flour, for instance, mix it with water and knead it, and you'll notice that it doesn't have that elasticity like Stephen just mentioned, like it doesn't hold its form. So gluten is a very uh, unique thing, and culinarily speaking, it's you know pretty interesting because we get fluffy bread from it. Um, but let's go from there. So that's what gluten is. Let's get into the fun stuff here. What, uh, where did the, the demonizing of it come from? Like what is, what's the story behind the countrywide hate for this protein? Well, you know, uh, it's always been uh, one of man's best friends, ironically, since the Egyptians discovered the bread can rise, um, particularly sourdoughs in the, about 5,000 years ago. First of all, bread's been around for about 10,000 years when wild grasses were, first domesticated uh, in the what's what's called the Fertile Crescent, an area that goes from Syria to Turkey. But jumping forward, um, the reason bread is, uh, and gluten and have always coincided uh, in, a, in a very positive way is that flatbread suddenly was discovered that it, to be able to uh, be baked into a form of a dough because gluten, although it wasn't named at the time, of course, was the active ingredient that allowed that to happen. Uh, the demonization was is basically brand new in, in terms of the history of bread because it's really started about four or five years ago. I mean, there are some inklings that some people had problems with the digesting the gluten molecule, which is a bulky molecule, and I'll go into that in a bit later. But essentially, William Davis came along and wrote Wheat Belly, and he essentially, not essentially, he did say that wheat has killed more people on earth than all wars combined, which is a pretty outlandish statement. And he combined it with a whole bunch of other outlandish statements. Um, uh, and uh, by the end of the book, if you even thought about looking at wheat, you thought maybe, you know, you're going to create a, a, a terminal effect for yourself in the next five minutes. He essentially attributed it to rushing into our bloodstream and creating all sorts of havoc with all of uh, all sorts of organs uh, and, and creating everything from knee uh, joint or any kind of real uh, bone uh, and joint uh, infirmities all the way through acne, through headaches, through bloating, and the list goes on and on. And he was very successful. Uh, his writing style is very conversational. Uh, he comes with a certain amount of authority because he's a physician, although he has nothing at all to do with nutrition in terms of, of his specialties as a cardiologist. Um, and uh, he, he was very convincing with a lot of references and so forth. But when you look into the stuff, as I wound up doing, in a much more depth than the average reader would, um, you find that there's a huge amount of spurious information. I'll happy to go over one of those uh, as an example if you want. That started the problem. Uh, with with gluten, and the next thing that came along very closely it was Grain Brain by David Perlmutter, who's a neurologist, and he essentially attributed wheat to um, creating uh, early Alzheimer's disease potentially in people, schizophrenia, and a lot of mental illnesses as well. So you put those two together, and you've got the perfect uh, poster boy for uh, a huge amount of uh, damage. Um, and the truth of the matter is that this is there's very when you get down to it, there's very little substance in their arguments, but there's just a lot of persuasiveness. Well, and, and what's interesting there is you touch on a few things, but one thing that kind of touch on with grains in general is that it's easy. I feel like scientifically there's a lot of things you can say that are bad about them because in some ways they are grass seeds, and as humans, we are not supposed to be consuming grass seeds. So that's the idea of the paleo diet is like eat like cavemen. Cavemen didn't eat grass, so we shouldn't. But then on the other side of it, it's that humans learning how to eat grass 
uh, gave rise to civilization. You know, when someone says, like, I hate wheat, I'm like, well, maybe you, you don't like eating it, but we're here because of it. In a lot of ways, grains gave rise to civilization. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about that. But with those arguments, with those people convincing people to not eat gluten, a lot of people seem like they're happy not eating grains or not eating gluten. Maybe they're healthier. Uh, what do you? What would you have to say about that? I mean, what's your kind of other side to the argument? Well, that's uh, what you're touching upon. Really, is the essential argument, which essentially, which which is that uh, if you if you're not eating gluten, you're you're basically creating a healthier lifestyle for yourself. Um, but the truth of the matter is that at most six percent of us have any issues at all with gluten. Um, celiacs uh, who cannot eat gluten at all, that's an inherited disease, that's less than 1% of us. 6% um, of us might be sensitive. A guy who really did the first test that um, seemed, to, seemed to indicate that gluten was a problem, a guy named Peter Gibson in, in, in Melbourne, Australia, um, looked at this again about two years later and realized he had made a huge mistake. It wasn't actually gluten creating the bloating, bloating problems, digestive problems in wheat. It was something called FODMAPs, which we can get into if you want, but hold off on okay. that for the moment. He now thinks that 0.5% of us uh, have any issues with gluten. So uh, to answer your question, which is a, which is a, a good one, you know, why, why can we eat grains if they're really not uh, good for us? Uh, it's not so much the grains that are the issue, as my book goes into in some depth. The problem, really, uh, Ivar, and we should talk about this uh, a little bit more extensively, is what happens is that the history of wheat in this country is the history of processing. And the history of processing is to create the whitest possible bread. The whiter the bread, the quicker you're dead, was one of the early uh, estimates of, of physicians and scientists who looked into this. Because essentially what you're doing when you're eating only the endosperm, which is one, the wonder bread component, is uh, basically shooting uh, starch, which is sugars, directly into your bloodstream with no nutritional value whatsoever. So the real argument is not so much whether or not we can adapt to eating grass. We've been able to domesticate our stomachs and, and our organs to do that without much trouble. Whole grains are extraordinarily good for us, by the way. And so to throw out the whole grains and, and you know confuse those with eating grains of any sort is a, basically a mistake. And, and, the, and I'll go over it too if you're interested. But the, the recent research of conducted on studies of, of a quarter, no, three quarters of a million people, over 700,000 people indicate that when you eat whole grains, including whole wheat, um, uh, whole or, uh, brown rice and so forth, what you're doing is, um, is lessening your chance of an early death by 20% or uh, heart disease by over 25%. It's, it's probably the single healthiest food on earth, uh, oddly enough. So, um, you know, to throw out grains as, as, as being uh, a culprit here, uh, you know, can, can really not serve people well unless they learn a little bit more about them. Well, and that, and that makes sense because, I mean, when you, look, when you look at cultures around the world, healthy people, uh, you know, the blue zones that have been identified, dense exactly. populations of people that are 100 plus years old, uh, grains and even legumes are a staple. I mean, they're just there in everyone's diet, basically. So, um, so like you said there, then it gets into the, the question of preparation and cultivation. Uh, so you mentioned the, one of the preparation side, you compared 
Wonder Bread with whole wheat bread. So like you said, that's white flour. White flour is not really wheat. It's part of wheat. So that's kind of the processing. Um, and then agriculturally speaking, uh, we have kind of created a wheat that's a little bit different, right? I mean, uh, the even a full wheat grain today is different than before. Or do you think maybe it's less healthy? Actually, it isn't. It has a reputation. It's called sh uh, short-stemmed uh, wheat. Uh, about 60 years ago, the Green Revolution began because a guy named Norman Borlaug discovered that, that wheat stalks, which, by the way, are, are, are very fragile, fall over because the heads of wheat get too heavy for the stalk to, to, to hold them up, and as a result of which, uh, they fall uh, uh, down a lot, and they're very difficult to harvest. Um, he created a short-stemmed wheat, which actually saved more lives than any other human being on Earth by, by general consensus, because that short-stemmed wheat went to Asia at a time in the 60s, 1960s, when mass starvation was imminent. The argument is being made that that same short-stemmed wheat has mutated and that the amount of, of gluten in the heads and the seeds, really the berries of that wheat, is much greater than in previous weeks. The truth of the matter is it's not at all true. There's a, the heads themselves are larger, but the ratio of gluten in the uh, wheat berry is exactly as it was over 100 years ago. So the answer is no, and it hasn't mutated in an unhealthy way. And you'll read an awful lot of spurious information on the web in particular about that, but it doesn't have any substance in fact. And the reason I know that is that I went out and talked to the leading um, uh, chemists uh, around the country who deal with um, uh, grain. Well, and, uh, and it sounds like, and I know your book has a lot of these interviews with the different uh, stakeholders and people along the path, and that's something uh, we can definitely get into more depth to. If you want to hear about it more, definitely get his book and read it. Um, and to kind of transition from that, let's, uh, let's get it. I mean, so if the wheat today isn't, uh, hasn't been hybridized to be worse, it's not genetically modified, which is a big misconception. I think if you type in, is wheat into Google, the thing that, the next like words that fill in are, genetically modified, and it's not GMO'd, is that correct? There's no GMO wheat in the United States, and the okay. reason for that is not necessarily that it, you know farmers don't want to plant it, they would love to plant it because it creates a lot less havoc, because nature, as we all know, is an unruly partner. The reason that GMO uh, is, is not um, uh, in any wheat product in this country is that a lot of the wheat we sell goes to Europe and it goes to Asia, and the countries where it lands, Japan, and all of Europe refuse to import any GMO products. So there's no point for farmers in this country to grow GMO wheat uh, because there's really no market for it. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize the reasoning behind it. That's interesting. Um, so the wheat is not GMO'd. It has not been hybridized to have like massive forms of gluten that are indigestible. Going from there, what kind of bread do you advocate for? I mean, are you? I mean, you're certainly not saying all wheat products are good. You'd mentioned that Wonder Bread's probably not a good idea. So, what uh, what products are you advocating for? Not only is uh, Wonder Bread, but pretty much anything that has um, um, basically a lot of white flour in it is not going to do you a lot of good. You know, you're not going to fall over tomorrow if you have you know things with white flour occasionally. But if you're if you're you know subsisting on a lot of processed foods white flour with white flour in them or other processed foods but let's just stick with white flour you know your system will tolerate it but it's not going to really thrive the answer to your question is that the processing that works uh, in combination with organic um, wheats if you 
can find them, which and they're pretty much available around the country now. The processing that really works well for your system and eliminates almost all the gluten problems is sourdough. Natural. This is real sourdough we're talking about, natural fermentation, which is different from going to packaged breads in your supermarket that may be labeled sourdough because somebody's sprayed citric acid in, <laughs> in the, which is true, you know, at the last moment. We're talking about basic, you know, local uh, artisan bakers who are making breads that show up at whole, your local Whole Foods, for example, or at their bakeries that are, that are made um, with a starter, a sourdough starter, very much as the old Egyptians, you know, did 5,000 years ago. Um, and that takes, that's a two-day process. It's not two days of hard work, but you have to let the the particular kind of yeast and only uh, the yeast that only sourdough starter contains with um, lactoacid bacteria, which is really only available in sourdough starters in terms of bread. You put those two together, they form this extraordinary alliance. I call them microbial lovers, right? Because <laughs> the, they they compete for different sugars in the starch, so they're not competitive. They form an alliance so that any kind of contaminants who might get into the starter are they defend against and they destroy. And they wind up combining forces to create lactic acid and uh, acetic acid and other elements that are extremely probiotically uh, healthy for us. And so when you're dealing with all of this, among other things, if you're, if you're making sourdough breads uh, that are naturally fermented, what you're doing is breaking down these bulky uh, gluten molecules into these tiny little things called peptides. These peptides are small strings of amino acids. They go through the gut wall very easily, and they eliminate probably... 90% of all the issues that had to do with bloating that, that might be attributed to gluten. Yeah, interestingly enough, I think there was a study done, uh, some scientists out of out of Italy, I think, then they were able to take a whole wheat bread and using some sort of sourdough method, they reduced the gluten to the point that it could have been considered gluten-free. Are you, are you familiar with that? Very much so. It's in my book. In fact, uh, they... They very specifically tried it with a couple of patients who are celiacs. Oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, this is, this is not at all uh, a recommendation to anybody who has celiac right, disease. Right. Go ahead and follow this. So let's be careful about that. I don't give medical advice at all. But, uh, but in that experiment you're talking about, actually there's a whole string of experiments done at the University of Bari. And I talked to the guys who did the experiments um, about this. And what they found is that it reduces the components of, uh, as I was just talking uh, about earlier, that create uh, the, the, the bulky gluten molecules to an extent that uh, they really have um, basically neutralized uh, any of the uh, in digestive issues that arise around gluten. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think, and, and those kind of sounds complicated, and the, the different acids, and the yeast, and the biochemistry side, uh, what we really have with the story of sourdough is the story of humans uh, taking advantage of grass seeds. I mean, it's very simple, like our ancestors, you know, I'm, this is, I'm dumbing this down, but they would have grabbed a handful of seeds, they were maybe starving, they ate them, they got a stomach ache. The next day, they mashed them up, it hurt them a little bit less, the next day, maybe they cooked them, and this progress slowly uh, turned into them mashing them, letting them sit out to ferment, and then cooking them. And they found that if they did that, 
they not only did they not get a stomach ache, but they got nutrition and, you know, uh, cultures were able to survive on this. So the story, it's, you know, I mean, the story of sourdough is the story of uh, human survival, you know, and in our resilience to eat foods that we aren't, you know, meant to eat. Um, and I think the, the idea of what you said with the sourdough there in a very simple form, doing it in your own kitchen, uh, it's really as easy as like mixing up flour with water. That bacteria will just populate it. Is that right? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, I have a recipe in the back of my book called the Final Five. Oh, awesome. so recipe, so, so, <laughs> Final Five. Uh, so the recipe. I make. I've become an uh, addictive uh, home sourdough baker. One of the great things about sourdough, if anybody makes it at home, they'll already know this, is that it stays fresh for over a week um, because the, there's this, it, it creates a certain kind of acid called linoleic acid. In, in addition to the others that fights mold and all the things that make bread stale. So my, so it's a, it's really kind of wonderful in that way, too. By the way, it's delicious. I mean, getting back to anything we wind up eating, it doesn't matter how good it is for us. If we're not looking forward to eating it, forget about it. We're not going to eat it, right? There's tons of uh, recipes for starters. And uh, on the Internet, on YouTube, there's a great site called The Perfect Loaf, which uh, I couldn't recommend too highly. It's got, you know, amazing amounts of really good amateur sourdough bakers sharing recipes and insights. Um, so it's great. And like you said, I mean, those recipes that are out there, um, it takes time. Like you said, it's like a two-day process. But I think it's Michael Pollan who says, like, it takes time, but it's not really your time. Like, I mean, there, it's a lot of sitting around. You're not necessarily, like, hands-on with it. So it is, uh, you know, something you do in your own kitchen. But like you said, I mean, it's hard to get good sourdough. This kind of bread you're talking about, it's hard to get it at the store. I mean, just because it says sourdough, that doesn't mean it's sourdough. Uh, no, it is. Your, your local bakers charge like five or six dollars a loaf, which is a lot more than you know, bread packaged bread. You know, and I, I don't think everybody has the time to make it. But I, just to go back to the point you, you just emphasized, yes, it's two days, but essentially, it's once you get the starter going, it's essentially you know thirty minutes of your time over two days. So it's really not that laborious, and it's actually quite enjoyable. I mean, it's time that's really kind of spent. In a wonderful way, uh, because you know you're you get your hands. You want to really get your hands involved in this whole process. What you're doing when you're massaging, when you're mixing up dough by hand, uh, or any other way, is that you are you are essentially strengthening the internal muscles of the dough by strengthening by activating the gluten. But when you put a wheat together, flour with water, and you mix it up, you know, and then you want to get into a level of springiness by creating this internal structure. And that's essentially what you're doing when you mix the dough, and it's actually kind of fun. And then it, gets, then it takes over and does its own thing, and you, know, you basically have to follow a certain amount of steps, but you know, you're, not, you're not really working very hard to do it. And I mean, and, and this process, I mean, this, uh, this recruiting of wild bacteria and wild yeast and working with the gluten, um, to be clear, when we say sourdough bread, this, is, this was bread prior to, to, what, 50 years ago? I mean, all bread was like this. Uh, yeah, a lot of bread was like this. There were some breads that were made with baker's yeast, which is, by the way, what you know, Fleischmann's yeast is a totally different kind of uh, yeast than we're talking about. Uh, but anybody who was doing it at home essentially was depending on wild yeast, which is all around us, um, and it will ultimately have some characteristics for your for your neighborhood that are different. For example, if you made it a thousand miles away, but. Uh, that's essentially what that what bread was all about, you know. It was whether it was sourdough or whether it wasn't. It wasn't really being made for the most part with bakers' yeast at home. You know, bakers have ultimately cultivated their own yeast, and that and, and they were doing it because it's much faster 
that yeast works much faster. For example, today, baker's yeast used in commercial bakeries um, is used to create loaves of bread that from start to finish are made from in four hours. That's like 750 loaves a minute go through these, <laughs> these bakeries. And I've been there and I've seen it, you know. And in terms of efficiency, it's very impressive. Unfortunately, the product that comes out at the end really doesn't bear any relationship to what I consider to be real bread. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess, and it's changed over time, and it's created these loaves that uh, transport well, and, you know, and have a lot of the characteristics that we desire, but at the same time have possibly, um, you know, diminished in, you know, nutritional qualities and such. Next time someone says, is wheat bad, the question you should be at, maybe ask them is, what kind? What are you talking about? Are you talking about Wonder Bread, or are you talking about an artfully crafted sourdough loaf from your own kitchen? Because, yeah, I think you've made a, a beautiful argument that they are very different products. Um, yes, so, uh, Stephen, people looking for your book, um, like I mentioned, it's called Grain of Truth. Obviously, it's on Amazon and places that sell books. Uh, do you have a website that people can go to if they're kind of looking for more information? I do. It's stephenyafa.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-Y-A-F-A. And on Amazon, you'll find that the uh, paperback is about 10 bucks. So they, they're really giving you a good discount on that. And there's a lot more information. By the way, the book is <clears throat> I try to make the book as entertaining as possible. You know, this is conceivably a dry subject. So, you know, I, and I don't like to read about things that put me to sleep. So I try to, as, a, as an author not to put my readers to sleep. I hope, and if, I'd love to get any feedback from anybody who's, who's reading it. Please uh, send me questions if you have them. And I'm happy to respond. Okay, perfect, perfect. Yeah, and I, I can I can speak to the uh, entertaining uh, uh, method of your writing. I was in Barnes and Noble. I ended up sitting on the ground and reading halfway through it in one <laughs> sitting. Like it was, it was. It's very digestible. You know, it's um, it's a topic that can be very complex, and you you presented in a very digestible way, and I appreciated that. So highly recommended to anyone interested in the topic. I think that wraps things up. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ivor. It was a pleasure. Once again, guys, that was Stephen Yaffa. His book is called Grain of Truth. Find it on Amazon. My name is Ivor Margerison from thefoodflow.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next time.